This morning's scripture reading comes from Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 12, and verses 28 through 31. It can be found on page 552 in the Bible under your seats. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 12. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Verses 28 through 31. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Dan. I serve as lead pastor here at Trinity. It's great to be with you. Over the years, I've watched the Antique Roadshow on PBS. If you're not familiar with the show, it works like this. The producers and their team of expert antique appraisers set up shop at a local convention center in some city, and hundreds of people show up. They bring their antiques and items of interest for a free appraisal and probably more for the chance to be on TV, right? I mean, that's the appeal. And what's cool about this show and why we watch it is for those magical moments when something from someone's garage or their grandpa's attic ends up being valued at tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. One time I was watching the show and a man brought in four ceremonial drinking cups, which we learned, as the expert told us, had been carved from black rhinoceros tusk and from elephant's tusk sometime in the 17th or 18th century. And the man who brought them in had collected them over 10 years, a 10-year period. The first one he bought in a gift shop in England for $500. And the other three, over 10 years, as his interest grew, and he paid total $5,000 for these four cups. And after a lengthy explanation, and we're wanting the guy just to tell us, what are they worth? He stops and he says, well, because of the beauty, the condition, and especially, said, the rarity of these cups, I would place the value in auction at $1 to $1.5 million dollars. What made those cups so valuable is a lesson in basic economics. Scarcity equals value. And in Proverbs 31.10, this principle of economics is applied by the writer to finding an excellent wife. Proverbs 31.10, again, an excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. 
Now, before we get started with our main topic this morning, which is marriage and wisdom for marriage in the book of Proverbs, I want to take a detour. And first, I just want to say that I realize in teaching on marriage, um, we're not specifically addressing adult men and women who are presently single. You really have no need to feel out of place. Marriage is not ultimate. It's just not. Christ is. And whether we're married or single, we must always remember that point. And marriage that misses that point misses the mark. Marriage is not ultimate. Christ is. And so even as we preach on marriage, we will preach Christ. And I think there'll be things that we'll talk about this morning that all of us can find a way to make application into our own heart. Second, in teaching on marriage, we are making a statement that runs across the grain of the new cultural norms. Why? Because we believe and teach, as we believe the Bible teaches, that marriage is exclusively between a man and a woman. Now, let's be clear, from the earliest teachings and stories that are contained in the Bible, we find not only a battle between the sexes, but we find confusion regarding gender. This is not necessarily something new. They're not new realities we're dealing with as a culture. And yet, Scripture, in the midst of different cultural contexts, never wavers in its teaching that marriage is between a man and a woman. And with that, and here's the main point, I think, of this detour, I want to give you, I hope will be some helpful resources about how the book of Proverbs is to be used, especially in relationship to gender and the respective roles of men and women that God has designed or that he built into the original design and that I believe is still part of his plan for men and women today. You see, the book of Proverbs consistently evaluates women from a man's perspective, but it never evaluates a man from a woman's perspective, which is totally appropriate given that the book in its original context was a training manual for young men. It's a series of lectures from a father to his son, not his daughter. And so we see that he warns his son against the adulterous woman and the dangers that she brings in chapters 5 and 7. But he never warns a daughter about the dangers of an adulterous man. Though that is, right, obviously dangerous. He commends the importance of marriage to a good wife in several places, but he never commends or talks about the importance of a woman marrying a good husband. And the book closes with the portrait of the ideal wife without once mentioning the ideal husband. And the big question in light of these concerns is, how do women apply the truths of Proverbs to their own life? What is a proper response? What is a godly response for a woman to the book of Proverbs? How can a woman learn from this book? Well, one writer puts forth a very simple, I would even say attractive solution, text flipping. By flipping the text, he simply means that the female reader of Proverbs can interject the feminine equivalent at any point 
when necessary, so that the above-mentioned verses would read something like this, an excellent husband who can find, right? He is far more precious than jewels. The heart of his wife trusts in him, and she will have no lack of gain. I think it, it makes sense. It works. And yet I think there's reason for concern here. You see, isolated from the rest of Scripture, Proverbs is written or addressed to young men, just like the book of Philippians is addressed to the people of first century Macedonia, and the book of Jeremiah and the prophecies contained there to the inhabitants of Judah shortly before the Babylonian exile. And while their message, because it's included in the holy canon of Scripture, that message is now directed to all people for all times. So that Jeremiah's message of sin and judgment and repentance still speaks today, and Paul's message concerning unity and the centrality of the gospel in Philippians still speaks today, and Proverbs, with its message of restoration or the restoration of order in the midst of a chaotic world, while it still speaks today, it cannot be read out of its original context. And it certainly can't be read through the lens of our current cultural perceptions. And in this case, our own culture's understanding of the nature and significance of gender, of humanity as man and woman. So we must be careful not to be too simplistic in our interpretation. It's often said that the Bible was written at a time when culture was male-dominated as if to discount its teaching on male and female roles and responsibilities. But if we trust that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for instruction and correction and training in righteousness, if we believe that the Bible contains the eternal words of God to man, and that God chose the actual setting in which those eternal words would be penned, then while we must work very hard, oh yes, we must, to bring the application of these truths forward into what is now the 21st century, we cannot ignore gender or simply flip any gender-specific text and still be faithful interpreters of Scripture. We're going to look here in a second at the qualities that make an excellent wife. And they're there and they're plain to see in Proverbs 31. But what about the qualities that make an exemplary husband? Well, if you look at the whole spectrum, the whole book of Proverbs, what do you see? Well, you see an entire book written to us men entire book that tells us how we should live and act. The exemplary husband is the man who listens and applies the entire book of Proverbs. And we could keep going down this road, but let's get off the detour and let's get back to the topic at hand. And thinking again of our carved ceremonial black rhinoceros drinking cups whose scarcity leads to its enormous value. The writer of Proverbs 
seems to think that there are a limited number of excellent women out there, right? I mean, that's what he's saying. If you can find one of these, oh, man, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Nobody runs around with sapphires and diamonds in their pocket. I have a pick in my pocket right now. I think they sell for maybe 30 cents or something. No sapphires, no rubies, nothing. The excellent wife is not common. Now, men, let me just stop you for a second, because you, you could go to one of two predictable man responses here. That's amazing. How did I end up with one? Which is more a reflection on you, right? Or you don't have to tell me how rare they are. Oh, my goodness. Well, hold off on making a judgment call about your wife until we get closer to the end. But it is the scarcity that increases the value. And in Proverbs, we're told that strong, competent, valiant wives are uncommon. And to that, I would add that there are a limited number of exemplary men and husbands. And if you start doing the math, what you're going to come up with is this. There are a limited number of thriving, compelling, God-honoring, God-reflecting marriages, which could discourage us, right? I mean, you could just kind of go, okay, this is real helpful, thank you, until we bring in Christ. And I want to put forth this big idea this morning, that in Christ, now for us, what was once rare regarding men, women, and marriage becomes common, and yet it retains all of its splendor, all of its value, all of its glory. And I think this point will become more clear as we move along. But let's begin by looking at the character traits that make the excellent wife so rare, and then consider what Proverbs ask of us in relation to this scarcity. The excellent wife is... And I'm just going to list a number of traits from the book of Proverbs. She's gracious. She has good judgment. She brings her husband honor. She takes initiative and responsibility in establishing her household. She's not belligerent or argumentative. She's not complaining. She's not crabby. She's not fretful. She's not worrisome. She is a major asset to her husband. She is a trusted advisor and companion. She is for her husband, and she is motivated by his well-being and has his best interest at heart. She's industrious, hardworking, energetic, vigorous. She prepares food for her entire household. She rises early. She's diligent. She's kind to the poor. She contributes to other people's respect for her husband. She's strong. She's dignified. When she speaks, it's filled with wisdom. She fears God rather than relying on her beauty. If I was a woman, that list would overwhelm me. It's incredibly impressive. And we might find relief from the expectations of a list like this by saying, this is a mythological picture. This is an attempt uh, at allegory here, symbolic of something, but not a real woman. 
Notice the Proverbs 31 woman represents many, if not all, of the qualities and principles that the Father has put forward for His Son concerning wisdom itself, which He calls Lady Wisdom. As we see in Proverbs 3.15, Lady Wisdom is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Or Proverbs 8, take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot be compared with her. However, although these similarities show that the excellent woman or wife incarnates the values of Lady Wisdom, they do not establish that she is fictitious or simply symbolic. This portrait of the excellent wife is to be interpreted as a real wife, a real woman. And she is the role model for all women, for all time. Wise daughters aspire to be like her. Wise men seek to marry her. And the wise woman, in making application to her own life, should not get hung up on specifics, but rather must evaluate her own life in relationship to the more general ideas that are put forth here, the general qualifications that they speak to. And as a role model, this picture of the ideal wife seems out of reach for most, if not all, women. And so it makes sense that the Proverbs tell us she is rare. So where's the hope? I spent a long time just looking at the passage going, where is the hope? And I think we have to turn to Christ, that in Him, what was once rare will be common while retaining all of its glory. You see, I didn't want to stand up here this morning and ask women to live up to these enormous expectations, especially Proverbs 31, without giving you some sense of hope, some some way of seeing how this could actually be what God is calling you to. So let me give you a picture of what I'm seeing. I think Proverbs 31 is a picture of Eve before the fall. She was the consummate companion. Her heart was totally inclined to honor God by serving as Adam's soulmate and helper. And she did this not begrudgingly, but with joy and kindness and energy, and vigor, and she was wise, and she had great responsibility in the kingdom, and she was full of love and compassion. Before sin, the woman was something to behold, and not just physically, in every way. And there was no friction whatsoever between the man and the woman. And they functioned in their respective roles with symphonic harmony. They literally made beautiful music together. Only love and honor and joyful acceptance of the roles God had given them. Only a sinless execution of those roles. But when sin entered the garden, there was a disruption of the order. God's creation entered into chaos. There was a discernible rift in the relationship between the man and the woman. And the beautiful music went sour, really sour. So we read in Genesis 3.16 that God said to the woman, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And the best way I can describe this, your desire shall be for your husband, without a lengthy Hebrew word study, would be to say that the woman's desire would be to rule over and control her husband, and he would respond, in a sense, violently to that. He would fight back. He would seek to dominate her. Not hard to see that the music's over. And the woman was left to the misery of competition with her rightful head. And if we think about Proverbs as the restoration of order in the midst of chaos, then Proverbs 31 makes a lot of sense, especially when we interpret it through the lens of the gospel. I believe that redemption in Jesus Christ aims at reversing the distortion Reversing the chaos that sin unleashed on God's world. Reversing the the tension and the fighting that was introduced into the marriage relationship. So that the wife, now by the grace of God, seeks to forsake her resistance to her husband's authority and grow in willing submission to his leadership. Sanctification in the life of the wife must include a growing resemblance to the Proverbs 31 woman. Look, you never get there. Not completely. A full restoration is not possible. And yet, in the shadow of the cross of Jesus, in the sin-breaking power of the cross, in the chaos-reversing, kingdom-establishing power of the cross, the once rare, excellent wife becomes less rare, but no less valuable. Hope is found in what Christ has done. Restoration and redemption and renewal are found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to keep driving this home. So in him, in Christ, what was once rare becomes common. And yet it retains all its value and all its glory. And this is true not only of women and wives, but it's true of their husbands. And it's to the husbands that we turn. Remember that while the excellent wife is featured in a handful of verses, the wise son or the excellent husband is the embodiment of the entire book of Proverbs. And like women, we men must live up to some pretty high expectations. The exemplary husband, he fears the Lord. He is humble. He listens to instruction. He turns away from evil. He keeps and he treasures God's commands. He has discretion. He is understanding. He is diligent. He is faithful. He maintains physical and mental purity. He is romantic and passionate towards his wife all their days. He honors and praises his wife. He loves correction and input. Where is that guy hiding, right? He's generous to the poor. He provides for his family. He studies and knows Scripture. 
He's honest, he's upright, he's gentle, he's not wise in his own eyes. And if you're like me, you want to say, enough already, stop it, quit, and I will. The exemplary husband is absolutely as equally amazing and as rare as the excellent wife. And because of that, we men should feel equally overwhelmed by the ideal that Proverbs puts forward. And here again, my conclusion is that Proverbs is a picture not of Eve, but of Adam before the fall. He was the consummate leader and provider. He worked with great diligence, and his effort brought forth great reward. His leadership was loving, it was kind, it was compassionate, it was passionate. He respected and honored his wife. And you know what? He cherished and trusted her opinion, and he loved to hear her talk. Look, he knew what life was like without her. Remember, he was alone, and it was not good. He knew what a gift she was to him. And she flourished and blossomed in his love. They walked together in perfect harmony, each fulfilling their distinct God-given roles. She was more than just a helper to him. Scripture tells us that she was bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And they expressed their love for each other and for God effortlessly. But then we're back to sin and the garden and the massive disruption of order in God's creation and the chaos that ensued and the rift that came between the man and the woman. So we read in Genesis 9, 3, 9, the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And later on in chapter 3, verse 17, Adam said, God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I would not have wanted to, to be in on the discussions that happened between Adam and Eve for the next 200 years, right? I mean, that Adam is to blame is clear from Scripture, but he's to blame in part, right, for listening to his wife, something that up to that moment had been very beneficial been very fruitful, very helpful. How do you think he reacted the next time she said, don't you think it would be better to... Probably not real good. He probably shut that down real quick. What a heartbreak. 
right? This once beautiful relationship of trust is broken, and suspicion begins to fill every conversation. Not to mention the fighting, the arguments. And now the man who once cherished and loved and honored and praised his wife sought to figure out how to subdue and rule and silence her. And if we think of Proverbs as the restoration of order in the midst of chaos, then the Proverbs man makes a lot of sense, especially when interpreted through the lens of the gospel. Redemption in Christ aims at reversing the distortion and the chaos that sin introduced into the marriage relationship so that the husband, now by the grace of God, forsakes harsh, selfish leadership. He grows in love and humility and care for his wife. Sanctification in the life of the Proverbs man, in the life of the husband, must include a growing resemblance to the things written in the book of Proverbs. You never completely get there, right? A full restoration is not possible in this life. You will battle with sin, and you must battle men. But in the shadow of the cross, in the sin-breaking power of the cross of Jesus Christ, in the chaos-reversing power of the cross of Jesus Christ, the once rare, exemplary man becomes less rare, but no less valuable. And hope for change and growth is found in the restorative and redemptive work of Jesus. And so when the man, by the grace of God, begins to put on more and more and walk in more and more and function more and more as the humble, godly, loving, gentle, diligent, wise leader of his wife and family, which was his role and privilege and joy before the fall, and when the woman also, in conjunction with that, by the grace of God, begins to put on more and more and walk more and more and function more and more as the loving, gentle, godly, wise associate and advisor to her man, which was her role and privilege and joy before the fall. When these two elements come together, when the exemplary husband finds the excellent wife, you get something very rare in this or any society. The exceptional marriage. I love this quote from the Puritan Thomas Taylor. He said, all married persons must above all things love and respect and cherish grace in one another. Ground not thy love upon beauty, riches, portion, youth, or any such failing foundation, but pitch it first in God and grace, and it will take hold. The exceptional marriage for me, coming from a Proverbs perspective, which is our task this morning, is one in which intimacy, closeness, a joyful spiritual, emotional, and physical companionship runs really high. It's a a marriage in which there is a visible rebuilding and restoration of the husband-wife relationship that was ripped apart 
by the Garden of Eden. Sin and the resultant pride that that twisted and tangled and mangled the foundation of marriage, distorting the God-giving roles and and robbing marriage of its joy and fruitfulness is, is being turned back. And with Proverbs' instruction on order in a world of chaos, the rebuilding and the restoration of the roles to God's original design can be seen in what's written in those pages. Maybe most clearly in the picture we've already read of the excellent wife. She's far more precious than jewels, and then there's this little line that just is really heavy for me. The heart of her husband trusts. Seriously? The heart of her husband trusts in her. You can feel the significance of that, right? I mean, this restoration of trust points to the reestablishment of the order that was there in the beginning. The fall led to suspicion and cynicism in the man towards the woman. And I would say, flip that. I will do some text flipping here. And from the woman toward the man. Listen to her again? I don't think so. Outside of this text and one other text in the book of Judges, Scripture condemns trust in anyone or anything other than God. And I think the present exception certainly elevates the excellent wife to the highest level of spiritual, mental, and physical competency. But more than merely competency, it points to the deep and significant and beautiful relationship between the man and the woman. And where's the ground for this return to trust? Well, it's in the very next verse. She does him good. He trusts her because she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Her commitment to her husband's well-being is true. It's not false. It's constant, not temperamental or fickle. It's reliable. It doesn't take much to notice that this is a divine move away from the distortions that were brought about by sin in the garden. Where the woman's desire was not for her husband, right? Nor was his heart inclined her way. But as Proverbs seems to indicate, a woman like this, a marriage like this is rare, and therefore it is priceless. And that brings me back to the main point. In Christ, what was once rare, no question about it, regarding men and women and marriage, becomes common and yet retains all its value and glory and beauty. Which you would be wise to say to me, that's not anywhere in the book of Proverbs, right? I've read the entire book, it's not there. And so let me explain with a closing argument for this. As we read the Old Testament, we see the beauty of God's ways and the glory of his character revealed. And yet we see its limits in a way or the scarcity of its impact, if we want to think in terms of economics. And this scarcity is everywhere. So that after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the promised land and the place of fellowship with God in the beginning, the truth about God is limited. It's small. In fact, it only begins to return through 
one man, Abraham, and then his children, and then within the rather small nation of Israel. And yet in his grace, God brings this small nation, this chosen people, back to a promised land where he gives them the law and he tells them, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell in the midst of you. It's a glorious scene, but it's really small when compared to the whole world. And while there were some within this small community who followed God faithfully, as a whole, as a nation, they weren't really that into God and his ways. And you know what? They were eventually kicked out of the promised land and away from God's presence again. And by the time we get to the old end of the Old Testament, a remnant, a smaller even group, has returned to the promised land, which is now kind of not looking so good. And the only thing that the faithful few were holding on to at that point is the promise that had come from God through his holy prophets about a day, a day when God would do something, when the limits would be removed and the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. A day when the Messiah would come and set in motion the restoration of all things. And when that day came, the prophets had said God would do something remarkable. He would change people. He would change people in a way that he had not previously changed them. They would experience God's impact on their life and his spirit in their life in a way that they had never experienced it. So that they would want to follow him and want to obey him. So that they would want to walk in his ways. And with that promise came a sense that what was once rare, people on whom the Spirit of God rested, would someday become no less beautiful, but way more common. And that's the sense we get as the church age begins in the book of Acts, right? When Peter tells the crowds that after the Spirit fell on Pentecost, when he says to them, look, this is just what the prophet Joel said would happen. In the last days, and this is what Joel said, it shall be that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days will I pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. I don't think this is as much about whether young men prophesy or, or see visions and old men because they're asleep dream dreams. I don't really even think this is about prophecy as much as it is about the Spirit falling on all kinds of people who normally didn't have the Spirit fall on them in the Old Testament. It was kind of limited to kings and prophets and special people, and those are the ones we read about. Now it's falling on everyone, young, old, male, female, rich, some rich, a lot of poor people, even slaves. 
And with this outpouring and with this breaking in of the kingdom of a restoration of the relationship between men and women is demonstrated in marriages, but I think in other ways as well, was breaking in on society. It's interesting to note that while we have as a culture acknowledged, and I think rightly acknowledged, the mistreatment of women in so many ways, and I want you to hear me. In doing that, somehow we've moved very quickly toward the irrelevance of men or the demise of guys, as one author put it. We can't seem to find, apart from God, a way to, to glory in both at the same time, can we? We, we can't find a way to balance the scales. We can't find a way to fight for the other, but only a way to fight for ourselves. We can't seem to find the ability to create a culture, an atmosphere, which encourages the thriving of men and manhood and the thriving of women and womanhood. But in God's kingdom, both are meant to thrive. And as I looked at this and as I prayed about this and thought about it, it became clear that this should certainly be our goal in marriage, right? The man should take his wife and work towards and for her thriving, and the wife should work for the thriving of her husband. But if we move this further, and we should move this further, it should become the goal of our church. So while we, we hold to men as leaders in the church, we should create an atmosphere within that leadership under which women feel totally supported, totally encouraged, in which they can totally thrive in Christ. And in all of this, what was scarce, a Proverbs man, a Proverbs 31 woman, a compelling marriage, I think will become more and more common. It should become more and more common. It is what God is up to in his world. And what is rare, a place where men and women work hard for each other and desire to see each other thrive and grow without the need for diminishing or belittling the other. The church is the place I'm talking about, in case you're wondering where that is. I want that to be seen by the world around us because I think it's what God is up to. Is it challenging? Oh, yes. I'm married. I get it. Is it challenging in the church? No doubt. And yet in both the marriage and the church, the purpose and beauty of gender, I would say, just like the purpose and beauty of race, should be fully on display. A display that points to God at work. A display that points to the grace of God at work. A display that points to the cross of Jesus Christ and what He did accomplish there. That's our call this morning. In Christ, what was once rare regarding men, women, and marriage becomes true of our marriages 
and true of our church. Will you pray with me? Lord, we've had placed before us some some challenging things this morning, first regarding race and now regarding marriage and the thriving of the sexes in the church community. Lord, we come and humbly ask for your spirit to be at work in our midst. We don't do this without you. We don't go here without you working. And so I lift up our marriages. I lift up husbands to you, Father, and I pray that you would give them wisdom and grace and tenderness. I pray that they could hear and trust the voice of their wives. pray that your gospel would begin to change them. And I pray that for our wives as well. For the married women here today, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them. That you would turn their hearts more and more towards their husband. And I pray for the relationship that it would become less about establishing who's doing what and who's in charge, but how together they can thrive in Christ. And I pray that same thing for us as a church. Lord, I pray for the elders of this church that you would show us how we can encourage and strengthen our women for ministry. I pray for our men that we wouldn't be threatened by the godliness of our women, but that we would be challenged by it. And that together we could drive each other to greater holiness, greater godliness, and a greater trust in you, Jesus. Be at work in this body, I pray, Lord. Amen.